0: When people in the Midlands want to talk, they talk to Will Faulkner.
1: Well, good morning. Have you got a problem in your local cemetery where giant monuments are being constructed? They're not to your liking. They don't match what everybody else has. And frankly, you find it offensive. You'll meet a man from Battle Slow who's in that situation and he reckons he's not alone. When you call oh eight one eight three hundred one zero three is my number. You can text or WhatsApp 083 30 10 Powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. Also, your questions about the forthcoming referenda. Do you understand what the questions are about? Because quite frankly, I'm still trying to get my head around it and understand all the ins and the outs. That's after 11 o'clock this morning. We go gardening as well with Solace Eco Garden Centre. And we take a look at more money-saving tips as we exit hopefully the coldest time of the year. But for instance, if you're driving a diesel car, is HVO a viable alternative? What does it stand for? How much more expensive is it? Could it even be cheaper? It certainly claims to be more environmentally friendly. That's from half past 11 today. Now, let's see what's on the front pages this morning. In fact, we'll start with a story that's not on the front pages because it was only in the early hours of the morning that a deal was reached. Power sharing is set to be restored in Northern Ireland after the DUP has decided very reluctantly, I think, after two long years of staying on the outside that they now want to go back into the Assembly. Uh, According to the party leader, Geoffrey Donaldson, he has received a decisive mandate from all sections of the party and the Northern Ireland Secretary, Chris Heaton-Harris this morning described it as a welcome and significant step. However, not everybody's happy. The traditionalist Ulster Voice, Jim Allister He's the leader of the TUV. He has accused the DUP of caving in on key demands. Anyway, that's in the news this morning. Front pages, though. Thousands more to get asylum decision within 90 days. That's on the front of the Irish Independent. Two countries are going to be added to the safe list. In other words, countries where there is not a situation of persecution or threat to life. And if you come from one of those countries, you will have your application processed swiftly and it tends to be a refusal unless you have some extenuating circumstances, personal circumstances usually. So Algeria and Botswana will be added to the list of countries from tomorrow And the belief in government is that it will reduce, number one, the number of applicants from those countries. And secondly, those who still come here seeking asylum, they will be more than likely refused. Apparently, eight out of ten applicants from so-called safe countries generally have their application refused. That's the Irish Independent front page, the Irish Times. Again, same story. Two countries to be added to Ireland's safe list, Algeria and Botswana. The other story, the Road Safety Authority has a lot on its plate at the moment. 2023 saw a sharp increase in fatalities and Lord knows 2024 got off to a very grim start. So last September, the head of the RSA contacted the Department of Transport and They are, in effect, the paymasters and the boss, if you like. And the request was €6 million in extra funding so they could expand their media campaigns and raise more awareness of various dangers on the road. And apparently, according to the Irish Times, it was actually the Department of Transport that had asked for ideas in the first place, but nevertheless decided to reject the request for an increase in funding. What else have we got for you? Let's move on to the Irish Examiner, I think. Uh, Where's it gone? The top story is that a murder probe has been launched in Cork after remains were found in a ditch, and they are believed to be those of a man who has been missing for the last five months. On the front of the Irish Daily Mail, RTE staff urged to break cover. So, executives and board members have been given anonymity in the report about the toy show, the musical Flop. And the story is how they are now under pressure to identify themselves. The Doyle Public Accounts Committee, which is chaired by Leish Offaly, Sinn Féin TD, Brian Stanley... It wants to know who these executives are, whether they are still in the organisation and so on. So that's a selection of what's on the front pages this morning. Let's see. A little bit of good news, actually. Elon Musk is not necessarily the world's most popular man. He is, however, one of the world's richest men. And he has his fingers in a lot of pies. Tesla, perhaps being the most famous, SpaceX. But he's also involved in a startup company called Neuralink. And what it's trying to do is cure paralysis. So it will install a brain microchip. And they've tried this on monkeys, apparently with success. And the idea is it will connect the parts of the body or the brain that have somehow been disconnected by an accident or a trauma. And it does so in a very technical way that's explained in the Irish Times this morning. But the first human patient to receive one of these implants is apparently recovering well. And there are signs that it may work as a procedure, albeit perhaps when perfected. So... It is worth pointing out that when it comes to Elon, not everybody believes him. There are many social media posts suggesting, well, some of the monkeys had problems with seizures and brain swelling and so on. He denies that. Here's a story that I think we should probably put the shoe on the other foot for. It's about taxis and the reasons we as commuters complain And apparently last year was the busiest year ever for complaints to the National Transport Authority. 1,800 complaints. With one, for instance, about a guide dog being refused to travel with his passenger. So 250 euro was the fine issued to the driver who refused to allow the dog in the car. Another was smoking while the passenger was on board they were fined a hundred euro. But if only taxi drivers could hit back, because I'm sure if you are working at two o'clock in the morning in Athlone or in Portlaoise or in any provincial town, the stories you could tell about passenger behaviour. 083 30 10 103 on text and WhatsApp. Imagine if there was a camera in the car and there would contents were published, I think there will be quite a few embarrassed people. Whether it's those, you know the three questions we're all guilty of asking? Well, is it busy tonight? What time did you start at? And what time will you finish? Surely we can all be a bit more creative. You know, it's it's from that to people pumping in the back of the car. Anyway, moving swiftly on. If you are the parent of a child aged six or aged seven, have you applied for the free GP card? Because it seems 17,000 children qualify, but their parents haven't signed up. And every time you go to the doctor, what is it now? 55 quid, 60 quid? So make note, or if you know somebody who's the parent of a six or a seven year old, have they signed up? hse.ie for details on that and you can read more in the Irish Independent this morning. Midlands103.com reporting on the loss of yet more jobs locally, unfortunately. This time, however, we're not just talking about a small business, a cafe, a restaurant, a shop and I'm not dismissing those for a moment. They all add up. But it's actually a large company in Athlone, PPD. And they are proposing, I've seen a figure of 100 mentioned in other media. They haven't confirmed the exact number of job losses to us. But suffice to say, there will be consequences when they, and this is classic PR speak, when they identify opportunities to improve efficiency and effectiveness in meeting our customers' demands. So apparently they're going to discontinue operations at their supply depot in Athlone and they are consulting with the people who will be affected but it has obviously leaked out and they say they remain committed to developing and growing their advanced laboratory in Athlone which performs cutting-edge work. So it sounds like the very high-value jobs, the research positions, they will... Retained and indeed may be expanded, but it's those more grunt work positions in the depot, those are the ones under threat, I'm afraid to say. More details in the full statement, indeed, on Midlands103.com and no doubt on taking care of business with Ronan Berry. You can hear him from seven o'clock this evening here on Midlands 103. You'll also find out later today where your local minister is going on their holidays. I mean, (coughs) excuse me, St. Patrick's Day trade missions. The Cabinet signs off on the itineraries today. And weather-wise, it's looking fairly decent, actually, this morning. Six to nine degrees when it eventually warms up. But today will be dry and sunny. Tonight, not quite as cold as last night, which is good. Uh, the latter part of the week will be wetter and a little bit more unstable. So today is a day to get outdoors, have a brisk walk and enjoy if you get a chance. (laughs) I'm looking at a message here from Vinny who says, I drove a taxi years ago in Athlone for an elderly man who always said if he wrote a book about what he had seen and what he had heard in the taxi business, he would have been assassinated before it was published so finney concurs that it's not just customers who should be able to complain of the taxis hilda says i am sure it's important for rich people to pick up the phone without moving a muscle unlike taking a small portion of that money and end world hunger which of the stories are we talking about there hilda nice to hear from you again And on text, referendums are about diluting the meaning of Christian Catholic marriage, says a listener who believes that the Constitution should remain as it is. Well, what is proposed in the forthcoming referenda? We'll have coverage of that after 11, but I'm particularly keen to get your question um, because I'm not even sure where to begin in trying to... uh, cover this over the next couple of weeks. There are many groups for and many groups against. I think perhaps if we start with just an impartial explanation of what the questions are and what the consequences of a yes or no will be, that's probably as good a starting point as any. That's coming up after 11.
0: Love the Midlands? Love Midlands Today with Will Faulkner. Midlands (laughs) 101
1: There are some cemeteries with very strict rules about headstones and, in fact, lawn cemeteries have become more common and arguably more popular in different parts of the Midlands. Mount Melick, for instance, or Eden Derry, and it's a uniform appearance. But the older, more traditional cemeteries can have varying types of headstones, varying stones, varying sizes, varying shapes, and so on. But lately, there has been a trend of erecting very large monuments to the deceased. And the Irish Times covers this in an article that paints a very stark picture of how this happens. In one case, under the cloak of darkness, when the gates of the cemetery were locked, a crane rolled up and it was used to lower building materials into the graveyard and by the morning, by daylight, a very large headstone had been erected over the resting place of a young man who died last year. That happened apparently in Ballinasloe. A similar incident happened in Ballyhawness in County Mayo and in the example in Ballyhawness The structure featured several life-sized religious statues. So, what is the position of county councils on this? What is the position of Pavé Point, for instance? Well, we will hear from the latter a little bit later. But Michael McCullough lives in Ballinasloe. Michael, you're very welcome to the programme. Good morning, William. How are you? Very well, thank you. Tell me about your local cemetery.
2: Well, our local cemetery would uh, have been established in the latter part of the 1800s. The previous one was further down the road and it's now disused. So the common factor was I've seen it grow in my lifetime and uh, land acquired and uh, new sections added and um, it would be the conventional Irish graveyard, perhaps with some small Celtic crosses, larger Celtic crosses, but... But I would suggest, conforming to the norm, that would be my
1: description of it. So, largely similar to cemeteries you would see elsewhere, not as strict, perhaps, as lawn cemeteries, but until recently, nothing out of the ordinary. So, what has changed?
2: Well, last year, um, a monument was erected, and uh, certainly... It surpassed everything that was in the graveyard by its size, shape and colour. And I may be incorrect, but it is a built monument. And in my opinion, if a person has to be buried in that grave in the future, the monument will have to be dismantled. Because it's, just, it's, it's, a, it's a structure.
1: Mm.
2: And so there's no, an impression of scale, Michael. Well, it's a double grave size and it could be six, seven foot height. And um, recently I was there and there were flags flying from the pinnacles that emanated out of the structure.
1: Flags for what?
2: I I thought there were gold flags, maroon and red. Maroon and white. Now,
1: so when you're glancing around, I, I presume this would obviously stand head and shoulders above anything else there.
2: Oh, absolutely, and overshadows other um, graves that are there. And also, it, I don't know whether this is a rule or a principle or a religious thing, but the um, the normal burial position in Beninstrogi Yard is you're you're facing the east when you're buried. Mm and um, that will be in my case whenever whenever that happens uh, in our own grave. But um, this is facing west. This burial is facing west. The headstone is facing west.
1: Okay, so not only is it out of scale with the others, the orientation is different as well. I don't know if there's a rule on that, but this
2: has been more or less accepted as a norm.
1: Mm. So how do you feel about it, Michael?
2: Well, I'll sum it up this way. I'm aware of a lady, a widow, um, who is considering having her husband exhumed from the graveyard and brought to a more placid area in another grave. It would be their graveyard, but she feels it's not the place to be now.
1: And can you articulate why? I'm assuming the scale represents is it something offensive to her?
2: It may be, it may be, and maybe overshadowing where she would go and pray for her beloved. Hmm. It's it's certainly not in the norm, if I might put it that way. Certainly not in the norm. And the one that went up recently, um It was, as you described, the gates were closed and locked and the boom was locked and a crane lifted the parts. Um, I have an email to that effect from the council that they um, built this during the night. Now, that in itself uh, suggests something, I would imagine.
1: I presume the cemetery is under the remit of Galway County Council, is it?
2: Yes, it was formerly under the remit of the Banstead Urban District Council and unfortunately our council was dissolved and it is now under the care of the Calder County Council.
1: And have you contacted the council and did you receive a response?
2: Well, I've been with them last since about May and June of uh, last year uh, setting out my concerns with the development of these um I can't say it's unsightly, but they are certainly monstrous monuments within our graveyard. Monstrous monuments in our graveyard. And uh, the response I got back was they were seeking legal advice. Now, there is a notice outside the graveyard clearly stating that um, permission must be sought for the erection of headstones.
1: I can't speak for the council, but I presume their legal queries are probably around taking enforcement action and what their position would be and the sensitivities of that. Uh, But would your concern be that if one such uh, monument of scale is permitted, then you will have others and perhaps even a race to outsize each other?
2: Well, I I put that in one of my emails to the council. I said... Are we going to see another one soon? And that's the one that went up, um, I think, the 11th, 12th weekend of January. And is it a race to the bottom for beating the other one or whatever? I don't know. I I feed... I'm only one person. And I am speaking about it. I think they're out of place. Now...
1: Uh, We will hear from Pave Point later because um, we understand that mainly this seems to be uh, a a traveller initiative to try and build large uh, headstones and larger ones still than the person before. And Martin Collins of Pave Point will join us later, but he is quoted in the Irish Times as saying, many, many travellers, not all travellers, but the majority... Demonstrate their love and their grief and their loss by erecting large headstones. That has to be respected, he says. Once it is not an infringement on anybody's rights, it should not be an issue. How would you respond?
2: Well, um, what is a graveyard? I'm very proud of um, the beautiful resting place my father, when he was he was only 34 when he died in 1940, and um, my mother's buried with him, and I'm very proud of our grave. It's a single grave, um, and his name is on it when when he died, mm. and my respect is in my heart rather than in public eminence of whatever. now
1: Well, it would appear uh, others have different views as to how they're going to commemorate their loved ones. Is there perhaps a compromise where there may be a section of the graveyard that uh, has looser rules than others?
2: Well, I would object to that because uh, even in Banless Law, and I think this is not right, and I hope I'm not offending anybody, there is a Catholic and a Protestant section in the Band of Slow Graveyard, and that should not be. That should, there should be no divisions in the graveyard. Mm. When we're buried, we can't talk to our neighbor, but it should be for everybody, not because of your religion. There should be a common graveyard for the people of the area. That's my opinion. One graveyard for all.
1: I hear the principle of what you're saying but if not everybody conforms to the same views on how to express their religion, then are you not going to end up with clashes of opinion such as what sort of monument or what sort of headstone is appropriate?
2: Well then, let's go back to the notice outside the graveyard. Clearly states that they must get permission to erect a headstone and if they headstone is out of order, it's out of
1: order. Now, I think our next call will be to Galway County Council as well, because if it's simply a case of getting permission to erect a headstone, that in itself may not be enough. The question is whether you have to submit specifications for the headstone, a design, whether that has to be approved. Um, Because it's conceivable if they just ask for permission to erect a headstone, well, that covers all manner of uh, memorials. So we will put that to Galway County Council and see what response we get, Michael. But thank you for raising the issue. Thank you very much. Michael McCullough from Ballinasloe. It's coming up on a quarter to ten. Have your say on 0818 or indeed text or WhatsApp if it's easier. 083 powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. Here's Just a selection of comments from Anne in Mount Melick. We were told when my dad died that we couldn't even put a curb around his grave because the rules are lawn cemetery. However, not everybody is obeying this. There are grotesque monuments being erected in the Mount Melick graveyard by members of the travelling community, and it appears the rules are not being enforced, and I cannot understand why the committee or the council permits this. Many people are asking about how such large constructions are financed that it must cost 50 to 100,000 euro to erect something of the scale that Michael has described. More on this a little bit later.
0: Midlands today with Will Faulkner. Keep following the stories at midlands183.com.
1: New procedures are soon to be introduced by the Department of Education to deal with bullying in schools. And the behaviour is going to be addressed in a Be Kind implementation plan. And keeping in mind how technology has completely changed how bullying can take place, you might argue it's high time that schools had a common and updated uh, cohesive policy on this one of those involved in drawing up the policy, John Irwin, who is the General Secretary of the Association of Community and Comprehensive Schools. Uh, he is also a past principal of Gallon Community School, in Forban. John, good morning.
3: Good morning, Bill. And, well, in terms of it, now, I wouldn't personally be involved in drawing up, but as one of the stakeholders, we would have people involved in the drafting of the Canaltus plan on uh, anti-bullying strategies in schools. And Canaltus means kindness and mm. focus is on the whole area of kindness. And I suppose they, the last time the the um, the guidelines were updated was in 2013. And they were updated in 2013. There were fairly robust changes brought in at that particular time, particularly around reporting, but the reporting was predominantly internal. And uh, when you say internal, it means at least once per term, the Board of Management had to consider all uh, incidents of bullying reported within the school and what actions were being taken. Now I know they're they're now looking in the new ones that will become at every board meeting and they're looking at some way of capturing that information nationally as well so they can get a national picture of what is going on because... I, see, I see that
1: will be anonymized yeah. though. It's not that you can log in and see how your local school is performing in terms of number of complaints no. of bullying but there will be a measure, a yardstick... Uh, nationally, yes, as yes. to whether it is yes. becoming a bigger problem or whether it's receding. Yeah. Now,
3: currently, when the inspectorate visits schools, at every inspection that they do in schools, they take a look at the um, anti-bullying strategies that are currently operating in the schools. And they review the board minutes just to see what is being discussed in that. So there's been a focus on it and they've been gathering information for quite a a while on this. And in terms of, you know, the stakeholders involved, you obviously have parents involved, you obviously have the school management groups involved, the teacher unions involved, and the students are involved because they want to try and make sure that the guidelines come out, that there's also going to be accessible materials for students, that like, but sometimes these policy documents, as you know, can be very adult orientated for the people who are actually trying to implement policies. But for the students on the ground, like, there has to be material accessible to students on the ground to try and ensure that they fully understand what the programs are and they can they can access the materials and the, and the policies as well. And I know from our own schools, they would have had a, a focus group working uh, with the, with with them. That's a focus group of students working with. them. So, you know, which is which is all very positive to try and move it on. You also mentioned the whole area of online, which is very difficult because uh, this can happen at any particular time of day or night. Uh, I would say that social responsibility, some of the groupings are taking on greater social responsibility. For example, we would be engaged ourselves and the NAPD, the National Association of Deputies of Principals, would have engaged with TikTok. And when schools report to us now there's an issue, we have a direct community line to TikTok if there's something that needs to be taken down it'll be taken down instantly. And I have to say, on, there are incidents where TikTok have acted very quickly mm. and been very socially responsible. So there's a growing awareness, which is really, really important. And on the course, definition we of can bullying, all approve.
1: I, I see it's yeah. defined in the plan as targeted behaviour, online or offline, that gotcha. causes harm. Yeah. whether it is physical, social or emotional in nature. And they talk about cyberbullying, racist bullying, sexual harassment. But one that perhaps could become contentious is gender identity bullying. Now, this is, as I suppose, an area that many adults are trying to understand and to, to cement their own beliefs and positions on. So if a child, for instance, wishes to be recognised as uh, a different pronoun, but mm-hmm. another child doesn't wish to recognise them as such, who has the greater right?
3: Well, in this particular case, I, like you know, whatever my beliefs or your beliefs or anybody else's beliefs are, we can't impose our beliefs on any one individual. And it's the right of the individual to express their own gender. That is actually now the legislation that exists and it's it, and whether I agree with what your beliefs are or not, I have no right but to respect what your expression is. And, and that is it. And I would say that if you take a look at the group belong to, they carried out a climate and school survey. And that particular climate and school survey has indicated that, look, things are improving, mm. but there's a journey to go. And the particular issue of gender identity is a huge societal issue. I've been honest with you, Will, I would think that younger people are far more clued in and accepting of that is, uh, than, than perhaps we are of an older generation on an occasion with, with, a, with, with an older mindset. And that's why it's so important that we're capturing the voice of young people and understanding their perspective as well. Because sometimes theirs is far more, in, in, in areas of gender identity, far more compassionate and understanding than some of the older adults
1: in the room. So when will this come into effect there's quite a lot of work. There's a lot of work done, but there's quite a lot of work still
3: yet to be done because it's fine having a policy and the policy and its aims and objectives, but how it, the practical implementation element of it happens, like when they talk about, as you have des- described, there capturing the the, the, the the national statistics so they can see how effective this is and bringing all this information together, how that actually happens. Like, what agency is going to deal with this? Who's going to be responsible for this? How is this going to feed into ensuring that the experience of children in school improves, which is what this is all about, and to ensure that the rights of children are actually fully respected? And it's an area where obviously we want to continue to, to improve. And the aim of this is ultimately that we're focused on the provision of an inclusive and equitable uh, quality education system for all children and young people. And, like, you know, they have a full Full right to be protected from all forms of abuse and neglect, and also to be able to access an education appropriate to uh, appropriate to them. So there's quite a lot of work done, and the actual um, what's there since 2013 is actually quite robust. But this would improve on where we're going and continue the evolving process of dealing with what can be, you know, a very, very, very upsetting experience for anybody in school and sometimes in schools we don't get it right. So we have to try and keep reviewing what we do to try and make sure that the uh, that children get the best experience they mm. possibly can in the quality education mm. network. Because you know that no well, matter wherever you have people, Will in society,
1: you're potentially going to have bullying. Indeed. And but, what but we want to do is minimize life lasting
3: Absolutely, Will. It can be devastating. John,
1: we have to leave it there and and appreciate your time and your analysis of the forthcoming policy. We look forward to reading it. Take care.
3: Thanks very much, Will.
1: Good morning. Now, still on the agenda today, on March 8th, you will be asked to vote in two referendums to change the Constitution. One relates to the concept of family, the other relates to a reference to care provided by family members. It's a complex area whenever you change the consequences and unintended consequences, and will those after eleven. But top of the list, I want whatever area of understanding you'd like to improve. Also, Pat responds to our earlier calls and comments about very large headstones and some would even say monuments being erected to deceased travellers in not just Ballinasloe but there are many, many parts of the Midlands where people are starting to complain about this and asking for some sort of conformity or uniformity in headstones that are allowed to be erected. Plus, HVO, it's a diesel substitute... That claims to be ninety percent more environmentally friendly. What sort of price is it? And do you have to get your engine adjusted? All of that from half past eleven. When you call, O eight one eight three hundred one oh three is my number, you can text or WhatsApp O eight three thirty ten one oh three, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. Two Midlands businesses have joined a growing list of those to announce their closures this year. The Wandering Elk has taken to social media to reveal that its Tullamore branch closed its doors for the final time on Sunday. All vouchers remain valid in Portlaoise and in Athlone, and they wish to thank their Tullamore customers for their support. Meanwhile, Better Buys in Mullingar has launched a closing down sale Ahead of its plans to shut doors tomorrow, the Tullamore store will be unaffected by the move, they say. So that's just better buys in Mullingar. Now, this comes only days after the pharmaceutical company PPD announced job losses in Athlone. So obviously this is at the other end of the scale as far as business size. Ronan Berry presents Taking Care of Business here on Midlands 103. Indeed, you'll hear him from 7 o'clock this evening. Morning, Ronan. Morning, Will. We'll deal with the smaller companies in a moment, but PPD stands out because companies of this scale have generally announced job increases, not the other way. Is this a one-off, do you think? Um, I suppose, direct answer
4: to that question, Will, would be no, um, and I'll, I'll tell you why now in just a second, but yeah, I suppose to put in context, PPD, they were bought over by Termo Fisher Group back in December 21, now fees reported being to reach about 17.4 billion, so that gives you a sense of the scale of the company you're talking about globally, about 100,000 employees maybe more than that, so I know we, there, there's no stats or figures giving us if there will be job losses in that loan and, and as to how many there might be but the reality is, I guess, in the in the overall global context, it would be a small drop-off for the company. Is it a one-off? Well, if you look at things like say every year, the IDA will give the figures on the number of jobs created and they always break it down into kind of gross new jobs and then net new jobs because company organization like the IDA would be very Um, aware that they need to report the jobs, the new jobs, but also the likes of these jobs that disappear or go out of the system from maybe multinationals changing operations, closing down divisions. So for 2022, which are the latest figures we have, the IDA would have reported 32,446 gross new jobs, but 24,019 net jobs. So that kind of Mm. gives you an indication each year of there is an element of, of, of attrition within that kind of multinational sector, which just those seem to be par for the course.
1: So, RTE is reporting up to 100 jobs at uh, PPD. PPD hasn't confirmed the number, but they say they remain committed to the growth of their highly advanced laboratory. That implies perhaps the nature of the work will be selective, that those so-called higher-end, high-value research positions are are safe and in fact may even grow in number. Those in the depot, which would imply perhaps more manual work, um, work of a less skilled nature. They may be the positions more vulnerable. Would you concur with that analysis?
4: I, I think that's a fair analysis. Again, without without having any actual factor, you know, clarity in the statement on it. And I suppose if I go back to 2021 again. PPT had around 300 employees in at loan and they had announced ambitious plans in May of that year to expand their laboratory facilities, and with the expectation it could create up to 180 new jobs. So, I suppose again, if there were 100 job cuts, you know, it'd be interesting to see how many of those 180 jobs were actually created, or if that, you know, or as we as I suggest, that side of things may actually be relatively secure there. If there are jobs, then that are you say maybe more manual or maybe more warehouse or admin based. There probably would be a high likelihood that given, you know, the ecosystem that exists in Atlone and Westmead and around the Midlands, that many of those people hopefully would be kind of, you know, absorbed back into mm-hmm. that ecosystem because we are at you know, full employment and speak to any business owner. And they'll tell you, it's hard to get people and very hard to get good people. And you can guarantee there be good people in PPD.
1: Well, for the record, the company says it's in consultation with the colleagues who are affected and know that that will take some time. So if we leave that and, and hopefully assume this is just that normal attrition in the IDA sector that you referred to earlier, the number of small business closures since the start of the year strikes me at least as being a little bit above what we would normally hear. It's concentrated in hospitality with perhaps retail taking up second place. And we've documented whether it's the increase in the hospitality VAT rate, the increase in the minimum wage, the uh, soon-to-be auto-enrollment pension and other costs that small businesses say they find it harder to absorb, the question becomes what sort of policy response does this deserve? Or is it also perhaps a natural attrition, survival of the fitness situation?
4: Yeah, I think I think look, nobody wants to hear that, but there is an element to that. I mean, like, like that too. Business businesses opening and business closures are, are are part of business, you know, and the yearly stats are always published as well. I know actually last year I think County Offaly apparently had one of the highest number of startups nationally, which is a great a great um you know a compliment for the likes of the local enterprise offices who are helping these companies. But yeah, like when it comes to businesses, I suppose like that too. Every story can be quite unique. You know, sometimes it could be due to maybe people selling on a business or but or it could be you know retirement or it could be other circumstances where as we're seeing a lot lately, unfortunately, the cost of doing business seems to be rising. And particularly businesses where maybe there's a higher labour demand, but margins are very, very low. And actually last week on the business show, and I know you covered it as well on Midlands today, David quirk of Wholesome Kitchen in Mullingar, they wrote a letter to local TDs and they outlined like they were very, very open and shown like the additional costs they reckon for the year ahead due to like things like the, the VAT rate being put back up to 13.5 for hospitality and the increased cost of hiring people with the minimum wage rises and all the extra entitlements for for leave and stuff like that they estimated to be about 160,000 for their business now they have 40 employees and I think if we think back to the multinational sector you know if we hear of 40 50 job cuts Yes, it's hard news, but as I say, a lot of those people can get reabsorbed back into an ecosystem in general. However, if you could take a business in the ta- in the town centre around the Midlands with 40 employees, if that was to suffer and and close because of the increased cost, the ramifications for that I think are much larger potentially and and huge. Now, I must point out, uh, David Quirk and his and his wife um, Denise Buckley, they were very very adamant. Like you know, they have a very healthy business. They just wanted to take a chance to say, look at this is the reality of what's facing businesses. Um, so like they're a very, very healthy business at the minute, and it goes to show the scale of the challenge that's out there. So I can understand why a lot of these
1: small businesses are they're really feeling the pinch. Well, IBEC, for instance, which represents many employers, it wants a freeze in minimum wage increases for the time being, at least. And um, I haven't heard much political reaction or response to that. What would be your view on whether that's feasible or indeed warranted? I think I suppose like, for, they're
4: calling for a freeze rather than a reduction in it like because one thing that seems to have dropped off the conversation in the past couple of months, I think, when the scale of of the, ch- the challenges and all these renewed costs came and business, the talk of the, the living wage, which is, at this point, I think is probably touching €15 Euros an hour. So your minimum wage is, is now set at twelve seventy. and I suppose the interesting thing with the minimum wage, and maybe why I may be calling for a freeze on this is if you have people working for you who are now on 12.70 an hour, if they were previously on, say, whatever one euro fifty less than that, it's it's that differential piece between you know the people who are on the minimum wage and maybe your your management staff who maybe didn't get the same level of an increase after the the new minimum wage rate came in. So I think for a lot of businesses too, they've now got more senior staff or maybe people who are in, in management roles going, well, how come my rate of pay hasn't gone up you know, to the same amount. So now basically people who are on minimum wage are being paid closer to what I'm being paid and that may cause questions as well. So I can fully understand why a group like IBEC would would call for a freeze on it. But I also think they've been highlighting and other business kind of lobbying groups are saying that it's the scale of which you know, the amount of changes in terms of employment law around leave entitlements, so much has happened so quickly that really uh, mm. some people are suggesting the government has not thought it out fully Others are saying that companies just—they haven't even got a grip of of what it actually means just yet—and and that could be a fair analogy. If you think of something like the Organisation of Work and Time Act, it really didn't change much in twenty, thirty, forty years, and all of a sudden it gets changed—you know—almost on a, a biannual basis too, and that brings further complexities and complications.
1: Yes, so arguably it's the sequencing of the changes rather than any one change individually that has. Some business owners complaining. But workers and their unions will point out corporation tax receipts have never been higher. That could only be the case if businesses were reporting profits. Of course, not all businesses are made equally.
4: Definitely, yeah. And I mean... If you go into the high end tech sector there, like where maybe for every one employee they're potentially returning something like twenty five million in profit you know every every year they work or every day they work, like some of the figures are absolutely astronomical, and you reverse that right back to like those you know pretty those smaller local businesses that are the fabric and the heartbeat of our towns and cities and the small little factories and workshops as well you know margins are much much tighter and simple little things like you know like an increase in energy prices even supply chain issues pushing the price of raw materials up and like we see a lot of you know disturbances around the Red Sea again that's putting huge having huge impact on supply chains even yesterday I know you spoke about like the issues that hauliers are facing coming through continental Europe all of which puts those costs back onto small businesses so your big tech companies your big your big big global companies they can absorb anything like that you know because the scale of the margins they're making is is so big but when it comes back to your small supplier, like it really is down to like you know every day one thing could happen that, that could potentially push them over that cliff edge. Mm.
1: Junior Minister Peter Burke will join us after 11 tomorrow to discuss if there is going to be a policy response to the challenges you've outlined. And I'm sure you'll have more coverage on taking care of business tonight from 7 here on Midlands 103. Ronan, take care. That's Thanks, Will. Ronan Berry. 20 past 10 on the way. Solace Eco Garden Centre takes you outdoors from half past ten. Questions about the forthcoming referendums. Hopefully we get answers after 11. And HVO. Don't ask me what it stands for. It's hydrogenated vegetable oil. Hydrogenated. There you go. Hydrogenated vegetable oil. Um, It can be used as a diesel substitute. It claims to be 90% less carbon dioxide emitting. But what does it cost? Love the Midlands? Love Midlands
0: Today. Midlands 103.
1: Quite a few listeners in the Athlone area point out it's not just the jobs at PPD that will be affected. It's also the suppliers and the customers and the families, the ripple effect of those direct jobs being lost. A point made by the chief executive of Athlone Chamber of Commerce, Tommy Hogan. We're surprised and disappointed to hear the news. Um, We don't have the specifics. And as you said, it's still only a
2: proposal. So I can't comment on the specifics of it. Um, But we hope that any loss of jobs is minimal. Any loss of business to the Midlands region is minimal. We're sorry for the families that may be involved in any redundancies that may
1: happen. And we're sorry for the wider business community here in Athlone and across the wider region. Phil in Athlone says, while you're discussing supporting jobs, what's happening to help businesses trade through the roadworks in the heart of Athlone? It's like a bomb was dropped and the streets have been dug up and small shops are really struggling to remain viable. It can be like a ghost town on some days. My goodness, getting photographs sent on WhatsApp of different cemeteries around the Midlands and the size of some of the headstones. And monuments is not an inaccurate term. Actually, I can't think of a better way of describing it. And they really are out of kilter with everything else. The question is, why does that offend? What is wrong with that? If somebody wishes to invest in erecting something substantial to their loved one, why does it bother you? Can you put your finger on it? 083-3010-103 083 30 103 on text and on WhatsApp, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. Next, let's go out in the garden. Change the tone completely with Solace Eco Garden Centre.
0: It's time for the latest community diary with Tommy Solicitors at Loan, one of the largest, longest established, and most respected firms of solicitors in the Midlands.
1: If I missed something that's happening in your area, make sure you pick up that phone and call Marina on 0818 300 103. We'll start with the Little Hill Animal Rescue and Sanctuary hen rescue runs taking place in various locations on the 3rd of February. If you want to find out where, go to the Little Hill Animal Rescue and Sanctuary Facebook page. Adoption fees will apply for the hens, and indeed you should check out the Department of Agriculture website for current regulations. John Lee's Bar and Venue in Tullamore invites you to a fundraiser for Palestine on Sunday. Proceeds go to Medical Aid for Palestine. See John Lee's Bar and Venue on Facebook for more details. Creative Writing Workshops for Children will be held on Sundays starting this week, the 4th of February, between two and four in Athlone at number four Bastion Street. It'll run for six weeks for kids aged 8 to 12 years for 90 euro. Contact Neave on 086-362-3971 or check them out on Facebook. Creative Writing for Children Athlone. The
0: Community Diary, with thanks to Tormy solicitors, experienced in the areas of law that affect people on a day-to-day basis. Tormies.ie Midlands today with Will Faulkner. Find out what you missed earlier at midlands
1: Let's go out in the garden because actually the temperature is starting to climb mercifully. It was a rather cold night, and apparently the coldest night of the week. Now behind us, we're into milder but albeit wetter conditions. John Carey is here from Sullis Eco Garden Center in Port Arlington. Morning, sir. Good morning, Will. How are you? I'm in grey form, thank you.
5: Grace, Grace. Crossy start absolutely uh, yeah. yeah but uh, yeah I think we might be uh, seeing a turn uh, in weather we might be through sure the worst of the winter but we're looking forward to spring now I we're really hope you're ahead. right you oh, do ahead. you remember the beast from the east oh, in 2018 yeah, February I think March? March oh March yes okay. yeah you never know for sure but let's be optimistic yeah <laughs> and isn't there
1: an expression about May is out I can't remember the May exact. March.
5: There's a few expressions out there. Never a cloud um, till May is that something like, like that. About how you can tell if, if ash uh, is, is first into, flower or into leaf, it's going to be a wet uh, summer. So let me try and remember that one and I'll come back to you. Uh, there are many
1: people listening who will prompt us yeah, on the yeah, various yeah, yeah. expressions. So yeah. better yeah. memories than ours, please. 083 30 We've had some questions over recent weeks about seed potatoes and the general tone is that last year there were problems sourcing them and whether we are in for more of the same in
5: 2024. Absolutely, Will, yes. I think originally our issues were around Brexit and we used to get a lot of our potatoes from uh, Scotland and from, from the UK. So um, that caused a whole upheaval in the market of sea potatoes here in Ireland, in eating potatoes in general. And uh, a lot of the crop went towards uh, eating potatoes, and let, little was left over for sea potatoes. The harvesting of sea potatoes and and storing of them is a is a harder process, is almost less reward in it for the supplier. So they focused on selling actual edible potatoes, and not so much in the ways of sea potatoes. So that was an early issue that we were looking at, and that was what happened last year, uh, and in previous years. Now, what we had, uh, what we're facing into uh, this spring. Is that because twenty twenty three was such a wet year, uh, a lot of uh, crops failed, uh, you know, which means we've less sea potato this year. And in terms of the storage then of that potato, because they were being stored wetter than normal, there was a lot of rot in 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 batches, which kind of wiped out batches apparently. So we we're seeing from our own suppliers of sea potatoes that certain varieties are less available, and that we're going to see, you know, just. Unless uh, as we head into, you know, March, April, May, you might see shells being cleared out of seed potatoes earlier than you'd expect. So the, the advice is, and they are available to buy now, is to get out there, pick the varieties you want to go for now and, and stock up while you can. So varieties, how many options have you got? OK, so seed potatoes are broken into three main categories. So you'd have your earlies, uh, you have your seconds and then you'd have your main crops. So uh, why, we dis- why we break them into that is simply uh, down to when you can sow them. So your earlies can be sown early, mm. interestingly enough. They're generally sown in March. Right. And, are, and uh, the great thing about earlies is that they're, 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 you plant them early, but also they take up less space in your vegetable plot and they're quick to harvest. So if you plant early, um, mid, mid-March, you can have a harvest of, of uh, potatoes by July. So that'd be your early's and varieties we recommend are the classic one is Sharp's Express, uh, classic because it's an all rounder, perfect for you know boiling, for roasting, for for mash. Mm. So that's a, a good reliable um, uh, um, uh, first early. Another one that's popular in the Midlands is the Duke of York. Uh, then in terms of second early's, uh, Queens is your, your classic British Queens, uh, Sea potato. and then main crops. So main crops you would probably plant from April onwards. Um, and these are uh, they're a larger uh, crop. They they give bigger yields, and they also take a larger space in your vegetable plot. So you need to space out the potatoes in the rows uh, wider. So you want for your main crop, you want about forty-five centimeters between the potatoes in the rows, and you want about two foot or sixty centimeters between the rows on your plot. And that's your that's your main crop. So they're they're planted then from from April onwards and harvest uh, up until November.
1: And what usually governs choice? Is it yield that people are concerned with? Timing? What tends to be the uh, I, I
5: think people will, will go for what's a reliable potato nowadays. Like, you know, so uh, what, a potato that kind of came, came on the market a few years ago was a sarpos There's a lot of different types of sarpos. The Sarpo moira kind of... Showed up. Maybe it's around a good while, but I, I, we only kind of came upon it in, in recent years. But mm. it really took off uh, in terms of sales and it was very popular early on because it was blight resistant. So you're getting a potato there that is, is going to like it's a main crop potato as well. Right. So uh, main crops are the ones that are most susceptible to blight because blight occurs later in the summer by um, by which time all of your earlies will be up and harvested. So earlies, you don't have to worry about blight. But for your main crops, um, Myra was a blight resistant, resistant variety and it proved very popular uh, with, with shoppers. But uh, the popularity has waned in recent years because it's not a very nice potato to eat. It's kind of starchy, kind of sticky, you know, just to make great mash. So um, for that reason... You know, it, originally I think people were buying it because it was a reliable one, but uh, people have kind of gone away from it now because it's not a, a tasty potato. So, mm. like, you know, it's a bit of everything. That so it's good at the end of the day. Pitfalls. What can go wrong? Uh, I mean, there's. yes. Yeah, so I suppose pests is your issue uh, with, with potatoes. This is the biggest one, of course, is blight, which we just touched on. Uh, uh, the first thing to say about blight, is, as I kind of touched on already, is that it'll only really affect your main crops because uh, blight will occur later in the summer when we have our warm, wet days, uh, and that's when you need to watch out for blight. And the problem we're really having with blight nowadays, well, is that there's so few chemicals available now to control blight. They've all been taken off the market. It used to be. Copper. You would argue that's a good thing. I will. I would argue it's a good thing for sure, but. Um, when there's no alternative, kind of coming down the road, it kind of it kind of leaves you wondering what to do next, in mm. a way. But of course, there are lots you can do, and this is around good practices. Um, first of all, uh, your blight-resistant varieties. I mentioned Sarpo it's not the tastiest uh, variety, but there are others, such as Cara. So that's a good uh, main crop blight-resistant seed potato. Um, crop rotation is obviously very important to prevent blight. So that means not planting this uh, potatoes in the same location. Two years in a row, you want to rotate every four mm. years, basically, um, uh, and then other things like well, you can use a product called a uh, copper mixture. So, copper mixture is a mixture of copper, zinc, and magnesium, and it it doesn't prevent blight, but it makes your 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 potato crop more resistant mm. to, to blight. Is it a feed or a wash? It's a it's a feed. You topical uh, spray over the top of your foliage. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. Okay, so that is that's a, that's blight. Of course, there are other pests out there: slugs, wireworms, leather jackets. So you're you're kind of getting attacked on all fronts there. But um, in terms of control for uh, those types of crops, a great biological control, which is uh, organic and safe for for uh, the environment, is supernemos. Which I think I may have mentioned in the past. Supernemos is a is a nematode that you would apply to your soil, and it'll work its way through the soil and eat the larvae of leather jackets and wereworms. So helping to can restore a balance in the soil between the good guys and the bad guys.
1: Excellent. Some expressions. Oak before ash, ah, we go. are in for a splash. Ash before oak, we are in for a soak.
5: Either way, it's raining. <laughs> that's the one. Yeah, yeah, very good.
1: Cast no cloth till May is out. Apparently, that's the other expression. Okay, very good, yeah. So watch out for the oak and the ashes here. John Kerry is here from Sullis Eco Garden Centre in Port Arlington until 11.
0: The Midlands Most Listened To Radio Show. Midlands Today with Will Faulkner. Midlands
1: John Kerry is here from Sullis Eco Garden Centre in Port Arlington home of a big gardening festival coming up. Are you competing with Bloom in March?
5: That's the aim, Will, yes, but we're getting in there early ourselves. We're, we're, we're aiming to have a, our, our garden festival will be the first week of March. So really it's to kickstart the garden season to get uh, you know people in, get them inspired, show them how to do various things. We're going to have talks on the day. We'll have free events, there'll be demonstrations. Hopefully we'll be inspiring people to, you know, do their garden up. We'll have uh, 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 courses on garden design, courses on growing your own vegetables. They'll have an organic element to it as well. So there'll be lots happening. There'll be deals on the day as well. And uh, yeah, the whole the whole thing will be happening uh, the first weekend of March. I think it's the second and third of mm-hmm. March uh, to Saturday and oh, Sunday. Keep an eye on the Solis Eco Garden Centre socials anyway for more details.
1: So, our Next question concerns roses. Joe has a bush and he reckons it's extending about five feet into the air and indeed in every direction barred down. So is it too early to give that a hack?
5: Shouldn't be too early, uh, Joe. I mean, it's amazing how much growth a rose can put on in a year. You just wonder where it's getting all of its nutrients and energy from. But yeah, you should be fine to do it. I mean, ideally, you would have done it after flowering at the end of summer. Uh But, uh, you know, just watch out for the frosty mornings that we're having now. Once they are cleared and uh, we're hoping for a bit of warmer weather to come in the next week, uh, then you're, you're in good time to chop that rose. And don't be afraid of cutting it right down to ground level. You can cut it to about a, a, like a foot off the ground. Uh, you want to tin out uh, any of the inward facing uh, branches. And, of course, remove anything that's the tree D's, the dead, the dying and the disease branches. They get cut right back to source. Uh, The aim that you're trying to achieve is an outward open canopy where all of the existing um, buds left on the plant are pointing outward, which means as the plant grows, it's not growing in on itself. It's going to grow outward, open, have a nice open canopy. And what you'll notice then over summer is that it'll have um, more of a resilience to the likes of um, black spot and Mm. and rust. Uh, They they develop on roses and on plants that are very uh, dense, compact and inward growing. So, um, yeah, you can certainly give that a new lease of life uh, once the, the milder conditions arrive. And we're hoping, you know, once you pass this early morning frost, you should be you should be good to go. Alison in Cantileash
1: would like you to talk about hedging. So she wants a perimeter hedge for privacy does not want to go back to the nineteen eighties and the huge maintenance of the Lelandies.
5: That's good to hear. She's on the right path already. So yeah, I hope to think that Lelandia is a thing of the past. It's certainly something we wouldn't sell and uh which we still see them getting cut down uh, everywhere, like, and it's... it's. Uh, it's I mean, they were a go.
1: fine, thick hedge, and they, they were, were visually head. pleasing, <laughs> but they grew, they
5: grew, grew. So grew fast, and they just sucked the life out of the place, do not they? They, yeah. they just kind of absorbed the light, almost. It's uh,
1: Also, they were susceptible to uh, some form of a disease. It turned them a copper colour, and, and it inside. would spread.
5: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost the, the inner lack of growth kind of comes out so I'm not sure if that's uh, just old age of the, those, those particular uh, plants but um, good to see them uh, not being as popular as they were and look there's loads of great alternatives uh, the, the big advantage to the land of course is well it was fast growing mm. so um, there, there, when I when I when I would kind of talk about hedging I would, I would break it into maybe three different uh, types and then you can decide where you are so there's be your formal hedging uh, formal hedging is neat tidy compact uh, you know, nice straight lines, you know, one colour, uh, very tidy. Uh, three good varieties there. Taxus are yew, which is a native, uh, our native yew tree. So that's obviously a massive tree if you let it grow into a massive tree, but you can plant it as a hedgerow close together, cut it every year and it'll be a perfectly neat hedge. There's a lovely example of it in Haywood Gardens. Actually, they've, they've really nice um, yew yeah. hedging there. Mm. Uh, everyone knows beech hedging, so you see that all over the place. In terms of we have it in our woods as big trees. Beach is an ideal uh, formal, neat, clipped hedge. So you often see it in um, uh, horse uh, studs and the likes around Kildare. You know where it gives a really clean finish. Uh, I suppose one concern about beach is that it's semi evergreen. By semi-evergreen we mean that the foliage will die back so it loses its green colour but it retains the, the brown dead leaves throughout winter and then fresh new leaves appear in spring. So while uh, the leaves do die away, you never lose the screening. You always have foliage on the hedgerow which gives it its uh, its privacy. And uh, hornbeam then is very similar to beech but ideal in damper sites. So that would be your, your, if you're looking for a formal hedge, they would be your three options I would, would recommend. Uh, but I believe uh, the caller was asking about screening uh, hedging. So in terms of screening, you're looking for your fast growing options. Um, and then there are probably three of them that I would recommend. Laurel is the obvious one. Mm. So everyone knows that Laurel is the big glossy green leaf, um, fast growing. So therefore you might have to cut it back twice a year. Susceptible to frost and does not really like exposed sites. You can see the the edge of the foliage kind of turns black, uh, which is really unsightly. And um, especially when you want that lovely, you know, perfect green hedgerow and you see these black parts on the foliage, it can be a bit off-putting. So if you're in an exposed site and you want screening, you could uh, obviously plant your, your laurel hedge. But alongside that laurel hedge on the wind side of it, uh, I would recommend putting up a wind barrier, which is simply... Timber posts two meters apart, and then rolling out a roll of wind block—that green mesh you see. So maybe a double row of that back and forth um, will will protect your young um, mm. if laurel hedge while it develops. And at what point of maturity can you take it away? You know, it, it's 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 almost best to keep it there. The laurel will always kind of suffer a little bit from those frosts on on a nor, on a on a, on a wind, wind side. So yeah, I would keep it up there for almost as long as you possibly could. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. I maybe refresh it after a few years. It's green. It, it blends in very well with with a laurel hedge. I actually found anyway. A wind block would do. So yeah, I would kind of keep it there forever. Uh, but it is uh, laurel does prove to be a very good screening plant. Uh, two other options. Uh, you know, you see this in towns quite often. Is uh, your privet, uh, and then uh, grislinia. Then is another one, but grislinia wouldn't really be suited to the Midlands. Um, it got wiped out in two thousand and ten. Uh, when we had our minus 10 degrees, I think, we oh, yes. dropped down to. Yes. So cord lines got, uh, hit, uh, you know, were knocked out, but also gristolinium was knocked out. and that. Now, they've all come back. The, the root ball was still alive, and they all shot up again. Took them about two three years to get back to where they were. But um, if you're in a frost pocket, yeah, stay away from the Uh The last one I would recommend in terms of a type of hedging is obviously the native hedges. Uh, the great thing about native hedgerows they, they, they're not, they don't have an issue with wind. They're the hardest out there. Obviously, they're native. They're suitable to our climate. And they're fast growing as well. So you're getting your screening. now with a na- It's
1: a question of whether you want that uniform appearance, whether you like there your you straight go. lines. Yes. And some people prefer
5: the more organic, yeah. natural yeah. look. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It has its place. It's uh, something that's definitely and thankfully gaining popularity in, year, in recent years is the, the informal look. If you have a garden that's too neat and tidy, it's more work, isn't it? So I like you have the informal to, look. You have to embrace <laughs> the informal look well sometimes yeah. like so so that's not just in your hedgerows, but also in your in your lawns, you know, get your wildfire meadows growing, you know, opt for a bit of a, a, a tree grove area where the grass just grows tall and mm. the trees are are doing their own thing. There's less maintenance in a in a in a natural garden, if you will. So yeah, a native hedgerow is the third a type of hedgerow. And uh, when we talk about native hedgerows we 're talking predominantly about white horn uh white horn would make up of fifty percent of your native hedgerows so if you 're planning a native hedge, um, buy fifty percent white horn and then any percentage of the, the of the next few which would be holly uh, uh, wild rose, gilder rose, and hazel and that'll give you a nice kind of mixed uh, variety of hedgerow you 're getting your holly gives you your evergreen mm. you're getting your white horn, which is has its flowers, has its berries, so it's a really interesting mix. Uh, it looks good, uh, and also crucially, is really beneficial to birds and to wildlife. PJ
1: has the hedge, wants to remove it. Mm. It's beside a tarmac driveway, so he's wondering: would it have a deep root system that that could damage the tarmac when extracted?
5: Um, you should be able to tell uh, right now. Like, is there any signs of lifting of the tarmacatum at this point? If the Adam is currently not being lifted by any sign of roots and you should be you should be okay now to obviously to cut it down um, you want to get a tree surgeon well I, I don't know how big these guys are but uh, mm. you know most of the land would almost require a tree surgeon not necessarily just to cut down the, the upper part of the, the plant but uh, the root stump has to be removed and you need a stump grinder to do that or a lot of backache and, and, and mm. axes but really it's only a stump grinder because you've got to get down about a foot under the soil level um, to remove that stump otherwise there'll be no options to plant anything again in that area I love this from Mike he says forgive the pun but is Laurel hardy? Oh, I like I like that. unfortunately not hardy enough it needs to work on its middle name or whatever but uh, Laurel is half hardy if you will okay. but, sorry it is hardy but as we, say, as we mentioned before it does suffer a little bit from frost Jake says he's a
1: fan of hedges with plenty of briars they tend to be more secure for anybody who would consider passing through them i suppose horses for yeah. courses and yeah.
5: also low maintenance you know yeah. let the briars do their thing you know there's benefits to briars i guess uh, it it does offer a security element but my god it can really take the look off what you're trying to achieve with a formal he- with a native hedgerow
1: yeah and yeah. you'll have to go out several times a year with the clippers and I'm, I'm they can out. be straggly
5: yeah they just overshoot it's amazing how mm. far they can stretch in, 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 in the summer
1: but again to each their own John unfortunately we are out of time so you can be found at Solace Eco Garden Centre in Port Arlington and we'll chat to you again very very soon thank you very much Will oh one before we go uh, Ina asks, "Is the yew not poisonous?"
5: That is, I should have mentioned that. You probably shouldn't talk about things on air and not mention that mm. they're poisonous. That is right; they are poisonous, and that's why apparently they are on. their are poisonous to livestock, you know, and that's why they were they were planted on graveyards back in the day was to keep um, farmers from yeah, putting their cattle onto the graves ah. to uh, to to the graves, you know. So I think the the, the church would have planted the, the ewe to. Prevents or to prevent that from happening. So, yeah, they are poisonous uh, to, to lifestyle. Love
0: the Midlands? the
1: Midlands Now, still to come in this hour HVO, a substitute for diesel that claims to be 90% more efficient when it comes to CO2 emissions. So, Do you need to take the plunge on an electric vehicle or could you stick with your regular diesel car, just change the fuel? Also in this hour, Martin Collins of Pave Point responds to your objections and others who have contacted the programme about large monuments, for the lack of a better term, being erected in different cemeteries across the Midlands. First, though, on the 8th of March, if you're an Irish citizen, you will have a chance to vote in two referendums to change the constitution one dealing with the concept of family the other a new text providing recognition for care provided by family members now over the next couple of weeks you'll hear from groups and interested parties who fall on one side of the debate or another but today I want you to meet Karen Costello. she is a law lecturer at Toos Midlands And you're coming at this with no axe to grind. Good morning. Good
6: morning, Will. Thanks for having me on. Um, no, I'm, I'm going to give an impartial view essentially for the listeners of what they're being asked to decide on. And I suppose give them both sides of the coin or a little taste of both sides of the coin so that they can make an informed decision. And I suppose that the main message here is to, to get out and use your democratic right and vote mm. um, and have your say in, in the way that the, the Constitution is written and, and has been amended. So I suppose to begin, the, the idea behind the Constitution Constitution, or when it was being drafted, was that, and, and as we say to our students in the law programs in TuS, is that this is a living, breathing document, um, and so it was written in 1937, you know, at a time when Ireland was quite different, um, and so there's been multiple changes to the the Constitution as Ireland has become you know, society has changed in Ireland and, and societal values maybe has changed. And so the two amendments that are proposed are reflective of that. So I suppose that's where we're coming from mm. when we're talking about what's proposed. So if I talk about the two um the, the two proposals, if that's okay. The first one, like you mentioned, is the family amendment. So currently there is constitutional protections given to the family as the primary um and fundamental unit group of society. Um, and what the courts have interpreted that to mean is that the family is based on marriage. And since 2015, uh, a family based on marriage is without any distinction of sex. So that's that's where we are currently. Um, and I suppose last week we had a case that came through the Supreme Court that acknowledged and kind of highlighted yes. that Um, a married couple is not just the only type of relationship that you can have. Um, And so the proposed amendment is... Just for context
1: to listeners, we spoke to the man involved, actually, and he hadn't married his partner of 20 years. They had three children together. She passed away quite young, tragically. I think it was cancer. And he had applied for the widower's pension, and was refused and indeed took a challenge to the High Court and and failed. But subsequently, the Supreme Court found in his favour. And there were some principles in that that might not translate to everybody. uh, But it did deal with the concept of, you know, what is marriage or what is what we're going to come on to now, a durable relationship.
6: Exactly. Exactly. Yep. So I suppose what has been recognised and the, in the lead up to this, there was a citizens' assembly where, you know, a selection, I suppose, of of um, society was, um, was given the, their say on on what they think. But I suppose there's a recognition that in Ireland now, that you don't just have. A, 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 you know, a marriage um um between uh, two people that there's other what what they're now terming durable relationships. Mm-hmm. So what is a durable relationship remains to be seen. Um, in in what we would call a hard case, one which it, it's not easy to determine, it'll probably have to be decided by the courts. Perhaps there might be legislation, but it was suggested by the chair of the Electoral Commission that a durable relationship might be one in which a couple are invited to weddings together or um, they're sent Christmas cards. So it remains to be seen. But hmm. I think
1: so in that sense, for a voter on the 8th of March, it is a bit of a leap into the dark as to what the courts may define a durable relationship, as subsequently,
6: I believe so. Yeah, yeah. And
1: how will the courts be guided?
6: They would. They would be guided by the facts of every case, essentially, um, because that's that's generally how it works. Um, and so, really, if a couple is making a, an assertion that they're in a durable relationship, they will have to have some evidence of that. Now, what that is going to entail, I you know, I couldn't, I couldn't say, but I would imagine it would be things like maybe. If they live together, if mm. they have children, um, if they, you know, if there's a history there of maybe pictures or holidays or, you know, being invited to weddings and, and so on, as was suggested, um, that that would all contribute to, you know, showing that they're in a durable relationship together. So um, I would imagine that's what, what would be considered. But again, yeah, it is a bit of a leap of faith.
1: Mm. But, but in theory as well, it could be defined in legislation by a subsequent government and changed over time as well. Absolutely,
6: absolutely. And like it was it was mentioned um, by the electoral commission as well who are the, the commission that are tasked to inform voters um, as to the options that um they they want to keep it specific but not too specific because again when uh, when the drafters of the the constitution in 1937 were considering what was a family, they they had it in their head that it was a married couple. Mm. Whereas now you know it's there's all different types of of durable relationships, and who knows in the future um what what it may be.
1: Um, well, could it equally so, be argued that the constitution has already exceeded, or at least the courts have exceeded the the literal meaning of marriage? And therefore, they would have scope to continue that, whether this has changed or not
6: i I don't think so because um now, and again this it's only my opinion, but last week in the in the supreme Court case the the judges didn't go that far in terms of, of making a comment on it. And it may have been that they were considering that there was a referendum coming up mm. or it may be that they were looking at it from a different viewpoint. Um, and so they came to their conclusions in a different way. So um I I, I wouldn't I, yeah. I wouldn't go that far just yet. They talked uh, for
1: instance about the care needs of the children, which and there wouldn't be in every relationship children or children of a dependent age. So exactly. that would that yeah, would be exactly. one difference.
6: Yeah. Yeah. Um so there, there's many different types. So I suppose In terms of what it might mean, you know, and the impact of that, um, and again, probably surmising a little bit, is that currently there's certain protections, I suppose, that are given to married couples or maybe certain differences. And and that would be maybe tax implications Mm -hmm. or social welfare implications or um, maybe succession right implications or even family law implications if you're um, married. Um, And so that will now extend to people in durable relations. So that's if if it's passed. If it's not passed, it'll simply remain the the same. and, And as it is where the family as a unit group in society is a couple who are married without distinction as to their sex. So that's the first family mm. um, amendment. So that's what's proposed and that's what's I suppose the implications are, or the legal effect of it. Um, I can this-
1: imagine the revenue commissioners wondering what the outcome <laughs> will be because somebody could say they're uh, in a durable relationship and share you know, tax benefits uh, inherit on a tax free basis if they say they're in a durable relationship.
6: Yeah, like it, it'll probably lead to a change in legislation because um, it, essentially now if the legislation refers to a, a married couple um, it doesn't refer to a durable relationship so it, it remains to be seen if it'll have to be extended to include those as well but yeah absolutely mm. and that's that's probably the um, what's going to be the implications of
1: it but and if there is subsequent legislation will we see it this side of the referendum I don't believe there's anything on the schedule
6: not not to my knowledge mm. anyway yeah and it's probably not enough time between now and the, the 8th of March Um the, I'll move on to the second one if that's okay. Sure. Yeah. So the, the second is the Care Amendment um, and it's it's interesting that the 8th of March is actually International Women's Day as well that we're being asked to vote on but the proposal there um, and again if we hark back to um, when the, the Constitution was enacted in 1937 it was seen as the women's place was in the home and so the Article 41 um, Subsection 2.1 was inserted um, that effectively recognised that um, and Again, what's proposed um is something more akin to what we see in society now, and that is that it's not necessarily a woman's place that's in the home, but that there are people men and women um who give care in the home um and so the proposal is that the article forty one um subsection two and article forty one subsection two point two would be removed and replaced with a new article which is article forty two b and that would recognise the importance to the common good of care provided by family members to each other. So that is recognising maybe adults who are at home who care for children or adults who are at home who care for other adults. So it's much broader in terms of, of what it um, recognises, but also um And I think what's interesting about this particular proposal is that it also says, secondly, it would provide that the state would have to strive to support the protection of such care with families. Now, again, Mm. we can only guess or, you know, surmise what that might mean. But it ultimately could be very beneficial for people who stay at home to care for others in the family. And again, that would be the legal effect of a yes vote. But if it's a no vote and if the, the voters choose not to, um, to to vote for that, it will just simply remain the same and the, the, the other articles in relation to um, the, the women's place in the home. So the second care amendment is really about gender equality, I suppose, if you were to look at it from that point of view.
1: Again, I suppose the wording is open to definition. What does it mean to support care groups such as Family Carers Ireland and they are advocating for a yes by the way but initially they had hoped for a stronger wording. Um, Support could mean a pat on the back, support could mean financial assistance. It's not going to be defined in the constitution. That will flow from probably judgments, legislation, whatever flows afterwards.
6: Exactly yeah and that's, that's always been the way with the constitution that the constitution are the guiding principles and thereafter it's legislation and decisions by the court that give effect to it really or interpret it and, and what it may mean um, but I suppose what it does is it, it opens the door to possibilities for people who are giving care in the home who who may need more support and the government are kind of given a commitment that they're going to strive to support that so again the, the wording of that would be determined mm. probably elsewhere than, um, than in this you know referendum. But again, it's just the importance of people knowing what it is they're being asked to vote on and to make an informed decision as to whether they wish to vote yes or no um, for each one.
1: On the other hand, could it be argued the constitution as it stands hasn't been a barrier to carers receiving supports? Men can receive carers allowance, men can receive respite care grant or it's called something else these days. But um, could that be the case that that's made by uh, the no side? Uh,
6: absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, um, I think probably what you're going to have more so is advocating for the the deletion of the um, the article in, in regards to the women's place in the home, because I know there are people who feel very strongly mm-hmm. that 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 particular article has never been successfully relied upon in the courts in terms of providing economic advantages to women who decide to stay at home and and mind children or mind whoever it is um and so i think the options were to either make it gender neutral or or try and go down a different road and so it's it's very i suppose it's probably topical that you know there are people giving care at home who maybe don't for whatever reason don't receive um certain supports so it's it's probably more important for them to have a yes vote that it now opens the door
1: on the housekeeping, then this is simple majority vote.
6: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, and they um every constitutional vote, it's it's put to the the electoral because, um, we the people, um, as it says in the preamble, um, give the the state the the authority to to do this, and it can only be changed. So yeah, absolutely, um, majority vote.
1: And could you suggest some good resources because different campaign groups will have their axe to grind and their particular viewpoint. What would be a good source of neutral, unbiased information?
6: Yep, so um they there will be a booklet um that is produced by the Electoral Commission, which will be delivered to every home um in Ireland, and that gives unbiased um information. So it, it essentially sets out what the law stands at the moment, what the proposal is, and the legal effect of a yes and a no vote. So that's good impartial advice. Um and they that's what the electoral commission is tasked with. Um after that, then people, I suppose, can can make up their own minds in terms of um, finding information. But just be wary of, you know, certain groups would have, have certain agendas, I suppose, and, and make sure they're fully informed themselves in good, reputable you know, sources of, um, mm. of information.
1: Leaving aside the substance of the issues then for a moment, you're obviously working with students who can be very engaged and certainly in the past marriage equality referendum and others they were active on. Are they as plugged in on these ones? What's your impression?
6: Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have two law programs um in Tooth uh, at Lone. We have a business and law program and we have a Bachelor of Law and Laws, which is an LLB program. And they the students are they're really quite impressive with their, their knowledge, I suppose. They all have access to um, to, to legal resources from the being in the university, um, but also they're they're tuned in to the internet and um, and what's going on. So they do consti- they study constitutional law. Um they begin in first year with the introduction to, you know, what the Constitution means and the importance of it. And then second and third year, they, they study the actual articles of the Constitution in great detail. So um, I was teaching a constitutional law class there last Wednesday and there was great debate. Um, and they're very informed and, and they've got plenty of opinions, which is great. Mm, absolutely. Um, that's what you
1: want to see. Thereabouts, uh, six weeks to go. 8th of March, Karen Costello of Two Midlands. Thank you very much for your time.
6: Thanks very much, Will.
1: It's 21 minutes past 11, still on the agenda today. HVO as a substitute for diesel. Also, keeping your house warm, not by changing the heating system, adding solar panels, going to any of that expense, but just by doing the basics. More details in half an hour.
0: Hear Midlands today, tomorrow. Missed anything this morning? Catch the repeat at midnight tonight. Or listen back anytime on midlands103.com. Midlands 103.
1: If you're just joining us, a little earlier we heard from Michael in Ballinasloe. He kicked off the conversation and others joined in. His concerns about the local graveyard where overnight uh, a crane rolled up, lifted building materials into the site and a large uh, headstone with surrounding uh, saints and other life-sized figures was erected in the space of a couple of hours. And he feels it is out of kilter with the other headstones that are in the area. And he would prefer if Galway County Council had some sort of common policy on what a headstone could be in terms of size and specification. Now, it's important to get the other side of the discussion. And Martin Collins joins us from Pave Point. Martin, good morning. Good morning, Will. If I was to sum up the reaction of, of, let's say, the more moderate listeners, they would say it's a bit like having a uniform policy in school, that if everybody is wearing more or less the same thing, nobody feels at a disadvantage financially, for instance. How would you respond?
7: Well, I don't believe in the concept of uniformity or conformity in most contexts. And I think there has to be space and there has to be room for cultural diversity, different traditions, different values and different customs. I actually think uniformity and conformity would be quite boring and very mundane from my my perspective. So in in the article in the Irish Times, that's essentially the point I was making, that we need to respect and value each other's traditions, histories, and identities. And there has to be that space to accommodate uh, cultural diversity. And you just made a quote there from one of your listeners, having a common policy when it comes to headstones in graveyards. I take that to mean a settled policy, not a common policy. I take that to mean a settled policy. So it's either the settled way or no way. And that's well, not acceptable.
1: I, I wouldn't agree there in the sense that there are graveyards where, too many local objections county councils have decided on having a lawn cemetery format. So, therefore, no headstone of any kind, no perimeter around the grave. And that hasn't gone down well in settled communities no. as much as traveller mm-hmm. communities. Mm-hmm.
7: Yeah. And, and again, yes. And I think, you know, local authorities, when they're developing these bylaws, uh, I, I think they need to take into consideration when they are developing the bylaws know the wishes the preferences and the cultural traditions of different communities Uh, and I don't think they're demonstrating any any sensitivity in that regard either towards the Traveller community or indeed I would say even the settled community so I think there is an onus on local authorities when they are updating their bylaws that they do take into consideration the really important uh, views and preferences, you know, that different communities have, whether that's the settler community or whether it's the traveller community. This is about compromise. This is about con- uh, consensus building, and it's a, fundamentally it's about respect as well, and it's about it's about equality.
1: So, what would be the compromise on the traveller side?
7: Well, again, we, we know, uh, you know, down through the generations, you know, different ethnic groups have different traditions and different customs around mourning their dead, respecting their dead shown the uh, uh, love to their t- to their deceased uh, loved ones, and uh, one of the, one of the one of the manifestations of that is you know uh, large la- uh, elaborate uh, headstones um, that we see in in the graveyards up and down this this country. So that's a really important tradition among our community. It's a way of showing you know their respect, uh, their love for their for their loved ones who have who, who have passed away, and, uh, and you know. But when you I, I, refer to compromise,
1: think... would you accept some level of restriction perhaps on how large those headstones become? Well,
7: well, I would suggest that each individual case, I think, needs to be negotiated. I mean, I think between the, the bereaved family and the local authority, I think there has to be some sort of a conversation there to, you know, to, to discuss and, and agree what's realistic and what's appropriate. Uh, so I, w- I would encourage compromise and conversation. That's the only way these issues uh, can be resolved. But again, I want to get back to the point, I don't like, you know, the majority population, the settled community, imposing their view of the world, you know, it's either a settled way or no way. There has to be an in-between for all of us concerned. So compromise, I would suggest, is the order of the day.
1: And on one final point, there were suggestions earlier that you would have different formats depending on where a burial took place. Some would be a lawn cemetery, very restrictive. Mm -hmm. Others might be, uh, as we've seen in Galway and elsewhere, as, as ornate and large and elaborate as you wish. Others may be somewhere in between. Where would you stand on that type of segregation
7: Uh, Well, again, I I, I don't believe in any type of uh, segregation, segregation, whether it's in the graveyard or whether it's in schools or whether it's in in the employment uh, sphere. I I believe totally in, in integration and mainstreaming. And I think that's achievable. I think it's possible uh, through discussion and and, and compromise. But, but can I just go back to two really important points here, if you don't mind? Uh, well, in the article that was published in the Irish Times, uh, some locals in Banlas Law were using really offensive language. Now, I'm not saying it's representative of all the people in Banlas Law, certainly not. But there was one or two individuals, you know, using language like, you know, these headstones are grotesque, uh, they're vulgar. Uh, I mean, that sort of language is quite offensive. It's not acceptable, and it doesn't lend itself to you know engaging in a conversation, a conversation to find a compromise here where everybody's needs and everybody's um, um, cultural preferences is catered for. So we need to get rid rid of that offensive language. And the last point. Okay, but you you could equally uh, argue that
1: your comment earlier about uniformity being boring could be seen in much the same way.
7: Well, no, I don't think that's offensive. I, I think uniformity and conformity—everybody taking the same, looking the same, behaving the same—is essentially boring. I mean, I'm I'm convinced of that. You know, it lacks color, it lacks vibrancy, it lacks diversity. You know, so. Uh, <laughs>
1: well, well, well the, yeah, well, I, I think whether you call it boring or. Grotesque, it's trading insults. It's probably not uh, well, no, it's constructive. Not.
7: It's, not. it's not. I mean, it's, it's very different. I mean, to, to describe somebody's uh, headstone over a loved one as grotesque or vulgar, that's just downright offensive. It really is. And that has no place in any conversation to try and find a compromise and move forward. And then the last point I would make here, Will, and I said this in the article as well. I mean, you know, uh, Irish people throughout history, in terms of, you know, um, burying their, their, their loved ones, uh, were always very elaborate. I mean, all you have to do is look at the cemetery in Neville. All you have to do is look at New Grange and other burial sites right across the island, which were, you know, huge monuments devoted to the to, the, to, the, to the, the, the deceased. Now, so this was actually a trace. It was actually a custom in Irish history, in Irish identity, not just in traveller identity.
1: Martin, I'm grateful for you bringing us the other side of the argument. Thank you for taking the call. You're welcome. Thank you. Martin Collins of Pave Point. It's coming up on 25 to 11, sorry, 25 to 12. HVO and biofuels in general. How do they work? Do you need modifications to your engine, for instance? How do they compare cost-wise? Do they compare favourably in range? And perhaps the biggest persuader will be emissions. Details next.
0: Midlands Today with Will Faulkner. Get exclusive content now on the Midlands 103 smartphone app. Midlands
1: 103. If you are concerned about the environment and if you feel transport is certainly contributing, you could consider buying an electric vehicle. You could consider a plug-in hybrid. You could just stick with what you have if you've a diesel engine, but change the fuel. I want you to meet Thomas Flynn, From Tria Green, HVO, and perhaps better known as Flins of Mullingar. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Well, Morning to our listeners. HVO stands for Hydrogenated Vegetable Oil. And we talked with Stephen Grant of Grant Engineering some time ago. He's using it in heavy vehicles. Give us your background and how you uh, started to bring it
8: in. Okay. Well, we started three years ago bringing in HVO. We're one of the first. And uh, since that, it has expanded and... Quite large volumes are been sold right now. So um, HVO is an alternative to diesel. It's a drop-in replacement with no modifications to any engine. Slight modification to a boiler, but uh, very little cost. So you can heat your house, you can run your car, truck, van, whatever, on this product
1: without changing anything on the engine. Now, we know with traditional diesel, it's comes out of the ground as crude and then is refined and distributed all around the world. Where does HVO come from? Well, HVO comes from used cooking oil,
8: so it's a recycled product. So there's no new product coming from the ground. There's no crops grown grown for this. So you're using waste materials. So it's used cooking oil and animal fats from the animal slaughter industry. So it's all from waste. And from what part of the world does it come from? Well, it's, some of it is coming from Ireland. Uh, the cooking oil is collected here in Ireland. And also, there's uh, the animal fats from the slaughter industry, is coming, it's been supplied from Ireland here also. So the materials are coming from locally. And the result at the tailpipe, how does it differ from diesel? Well, you're getting a 90%, 90, 92% reduction in emissions, as carbon emissions. And that's massive. You're getting 85% reduction in particulate matter, and also uh, NOx emissions by roughly 30%. And when you're driving, do you detect any difference? Does the car perform the same? The car, absolutely the same. I, I'm running my own car in it now for the last three years and no difference whatsoever in performance. In, actually, people are telling me they're getting more miles per gallon it, so it's actually performed better. There's no
1: odours from the tailpipe. Yeah, I was Clean. going to ask because I remember there was a perception and perhaps earlier variants yeah. of the technology 20 years ago where you smelled like a chip shop going around. Yeah, okay, no, there's absolutely no odours from this. It's completely odourless. And this
8: is a big benefit. Like if you, we've supplied it to boats on the Shannon last year on a trial. And if you were out on a boat on the Shannon, the last thing you want to smell is the smell of diesel. Mm. So this is a real win win in that situation. And the same with buses. And also, the particulate matter, which is the black smuts that come from a diesel engine, they're not. there's no, none of that
1: from this. There's no smoke. Yeah, and I know it's often a pain trying to burn out the uh, particulate filter when it clogs up, as it inevitably does. Absolutely. So let's talk about the economics. And we'll come on to the tax in a moment. But how does the price of HVO compare with regular diesel?
8: Well, for a, for a car or truck or that sort of thing, you're down roughly 12 to 15 cents a litre dear. Right. So. so, But, you know, that's not the only situation. If you take a litre of diesel it emits 3.3 kilograms of carbon and the, the, this is less than 0.4 of carbon, so you're saving for every litre, you're saving roughly 3 kilograms
1: of carbon, which is massive, you know. Well, let's but let's talk about the tax component okay. because regular diesel attracts excise duty, Uh, there's a carbon tax on it, Uh, there's that obviously. So a substantial portion of what you pay at the pump is going to the exchequer. With HVO where does the tax come in? Well, with diesel there's roughly 65%
8: of the price of your diesel you pay is is tax. Now uh, the only difference in taxation between diesel and HVO is the carbon tax which has not been charged now on HVO. So that's the only difference. and So the character- VAT think- applies and the excise applies? The VAT and the excise, exact same as fossil diesel, yes.
1: Now, I'm not sure of the rules at EU level, and I know there are restrictions on what the government can do, but potentially there could be a tax solution that would bring it down to a level akin to regular diesel.
8: Uh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, there could be. That could be done in any budget or any measure to reduce the taxation on HVO, to promote clean driving. Uh, There's a huge park of cars out there, diesel vehicles. They are going to serve out their lifetime, ideally, and trucks. And uh, this is the only fuel at the moment available to reduce the carbon emissions. Mm. And this can be done today. You don't have to wait to change your car. You don't have to spend anything else other than change your fuel.
1: Now, I mentioned one early adopter being Grant Engineering and others are coming along. But are you seeing ordinary private motorists embrace the fuel or is it just the corporate sector?
8: Yes. As as the, the knowledge gets out there and people know of it, people are willing to change. And we have a pump on our forecourt at the moment in the Downs Mullingar with HVO on it. And people are coming in to fill up HVO. They're, they're willing to change. And... It, the electric vehicle doesn't suit everybody, people doing long distance. So people are changing to HVO voluntary and paying the extra just to
1: do the right thing. Mm. I haven't tried it yet. I'm looking forward to it. You're welcome. To. I'm always curious how it will yeah. perform. And indeed, anybody who has tried it, and if they want to give us their own anecdotal evidence of more miles per gallon, yeah. that features into the price as well. Tell us about this uh, energy park you've created.
8: Yeah, well, I suppose uh, in the downs we have, uh, we have permission for an anaerobic digester, which is going to be built in the next couple of years. I got that back in 2012. Struggled in many ways to get this thing up and running. Lots of difficulties, lots of hurdles. We've also permission for a solar farm there. We have now the HVO. uh, We have up to a million litres of HVO in stock on the site. And ideally, I want to move to an all-renewable service area. So we're also looking at the potential for putting in car charging points mm. also on the site.
1: So my idea is to
8: get a completely renewable site.
1: And how long into the future do you see all of this maturing?
8: Well, as soon as the anaerobic digester is built, we'll have um, renewable gas on the site as well, which is uh, useful for transport. And it's another option. So I'd say over the next, maybe, five. Mm. It's probably in the next five years. Hopefully in the next five years we'll get a
1: And more jobs as a result.
8: Yeah.
1: Thomas, pleasure meeting you. Thank you very much for joining us on the programme. Thank you very much, Will. That's Thomas Flynn of Tria Green, HVO.
0: The home of the Midlands Today Show. Right here, let's turn it up. Monday to Friday from 9am.
1: When it comes to heating your home, we can talk about boilers and we can talk about solar panels and indeed all of these new technologies as well, infrared heating. And it, it really boggles the mind, the technology. But sometimes you just have to look at the basics. And are you keeping the heat you've already generated in or is it escaping? We looked at doors and windows last week. Let's talk insulation today with Brendan O'Carroll of Premier Insulations in Burr. Morning, Brendan. Morning, I Will. So, one of the questions that often comes up, and indeed it was last year at the Green Home and Energy Show, how old does your house need to be before you should consider insulation? Mine is 2006, for instance. So, I would have hoped it was new enough not
9: to need an upgrade. No, well, I suppose uh, SCAI, in the wisdom, offer guidelines on on, on that type of question and uh, they will grant date any property that has been built prior to 2011. So, you know, they would uh, see that any house built prior to that year would be would require and uh, benefit from an insulation uh, retrofit upgrade. The type of upgrades, I suppose, available for older houses, if you go back to the 50s, 60s, they were primarily built with mass concrete or
1: hmm.
9: even before that with stone and then moved on with, say, nine-inch hollow block. So... All those properties, if you're talking in terms of wall insulation, would probably require uh, internal wall insulation or maybe more commonly known as dry lining because they wouldn't be, uh, they wouldn't be constructed with a cavity-type uh, external structure.
1: When did the cavities become more common?
9: Uh, cavities started becoming common as a move on from 9-inch um, hollow block and solid walls around the late 50s, 60s. Now, you can find some cavity walls going back to the 30s and 40s, but I would say... As a rule of thumb, you'll find predominantly cavity wall construction from 1970 onwards.
1: Mm-hmm. And in those days, was it just an air pocket, an empty air pocket?
9: Absolutely. Absolutely. What they built as a, as a as new technology, uh, inverted commas at the time, they built two parallel walls and left a gap in between. And this was to eradicate any dampness arising on the inner wall and allowing airflow um, around through the cavity. And uh, I suppose it quickly moved on when people realized that there was an opportunity without any detrimental effect to fill that cavity with an insulation product and thus save that valuable heat that people were generating within their homes. Even though I suppose at that time fuel was quite a cheap uh, commodity. Mm.
1: Um, And those early fillers, what were they, how effective were they?
9: Uh, they were quite effective, I suppose. They weren't actually a, um, a retrofit or filling them. It was wasn't really that common at that time. There was an airboard um, put into the cavity at the type of construction at the time of construction, which was um, tied to the inner leaf. And uh, in in the initial stages, in the early seventies, that airboard would have been just twenty five mil thick, which I suppose was better than nothing. But in today's terms, were very very minuscule amount of insulation. And then it moved on to 40 mil insulation and up to 60 mil insulation. And I suppose in the 2011-2010 era, it moved into PIR board, a much more effective um, polyurethane type insulation. And therefore, any houses, as we mentioned earlier, built prior to the 2011 period would benefit greatly from an insulation upgrade um, uh, within the cavity.
1: Mm. Now, let's say you're the homeowner who doesn't know what kind of wall you have. How do you, as somebody coming in to assess it, figure out?
9: Yeah, I suppose, you know, we offer a full turnkey package in terms of someone making an initial inquiry. We have a team of surveyors on the road who will call to survey the property and to uh, establish that very fact as to the, the type of construction um, and the era the house was built and the type of construction it was it was it is built from and uh, the most suitable uh, remedial upgrade to, to, to undertake on that particular property. Um some homeowners, I suppose, depending on their knowledge of uh you know, construction issues they, they they would or they wouldn't know but um basically that's it we do the survey mm-hmm. uh, we advise the homeowner on what the construction is advise them on you know how they'll benefit best from um what the particular upgrade that uh measure that we would recommend and um then we'll follow through that with obviously offering them a quotation for doing the works and uh talked them through the very generous uh, SEA grants that are available currently and even helped them with the process through the application. So right from start to finish, we can assist the home while they're in uh, carrying out the, the, the upgrades, and the, you know, which will greatly benefit the home in terms of comfort levels, energy efficiency and additional value to the home.
1: I know we've focused a lot on walls, but just to close it off, what sort of options are available? Let's say it's probably easiest if it's an empty cavity, But if it's a more modern, uh, there's something already in there, but not quite as good as potentially what sort of solutions are available? That's
9: a very good question. And I mean, I suppose... 90 plus percent of homes that we're upgrading at the moment would already have a level of insulation within the cavity. You know, the majority would have been built in the 80s, 90s, noughties, mm. right up to 2010. And all those would have anywhere from sort of 25 ml of polystyrene up to 60 milli polystyrene within the cavity. And we literally just top up the residual cavity that's there. And because the material, you know, is of a better thermal value than what's in there already um, as polystyrene, you know, you can get uh, improvements of up to 150-200% in the thermal efficiency of the wall. Very simple process. Uh, It takes about half a day to have your cavities um, upgraded. Um, All the works are done from outside. It's normally a two or a three-man team. And, you know, most importantly of it all, there's very little cost to the homeowner these days. And I think... uh, People don't realize the value that's out there at the moment in upgrading the insulation levels in their home and the generous grants that are available. We've done several homes um we do several homes every week where the homeowner only has to pay maybe four or five hundred euro uh, to upgrade the cavity wall and loft insulation in their homes and people don't realize that. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I I I think if people were uh, I often compare it to the analogy of if you went outside and t- saw your uh, petrol tank leaking. You'd get it fixed very quickly, but your home is leaking valuable energy every day, every week. And, you know, it can cost you very, very little to uh, solve that that expensive issue. One
1: of the most visible reminders can be on a frosty morning, such as we've just had. You go outside and you look at the roofs of different houses and some are white. So there is mm-hmm. no heat coming up yeah, well to the roof. Well, well insulated, insulated. Yeah. exactly. Well
9: insulated homes, yeah.
1: Others, it has completely melted because mm-hmm. of the the heat is escaping. So with roofs, is it just basically stuff in as much insulation as possible? What's the corrective action?
9: Well, again, I mean, every, uh, every, every loft or, you know, a, a domestic attic, if you like, should have a minimum of 300 mil of insulation and uh, renault money. That's 12 inches. So invariably, homes will just have, you know, four five, six inches insulation just up to the top of the joyce in their homes uh, They will quite frequently have flooring put in on top of that, and they'll have Christmas trees and suitcases and storage um, up there. And they're reluctant to put in more insulation, maybe in some instances, because it might, uh, you know, eliminate their uh, storage requirements. And this is all a a very uh, problem can be easily overcome. And uh, when we go in to do... um, An upgrade in loft insulation where there's some level of insulation, but way below the required um, um, amount, what we do is we do a full system there, which means we uh, upgrade the insulation to 300 mil. Uh, we'll put down a raised insulated storage area which is above the insulation level we'll insulate the pipes we'll insulate the tanks we'll insulate the hatch door to the same level as the rest of the attic we'll draft proof the hatch door we'll maintain or provide necessary ventilation all this is part of the very stringent s e a i requirement for eligibility for the grant so your attic is done is is complete to a very high standard and you can still maintain an adequate storage area for all those bits and pieces you want to store up there. So basically it is worthwhile. And again, for, you know, for um, a a bungalow, your average bungalow in the country, you can get €1,500 of a grant towards your attic insulation, which goes a long, long way towards the overall cost. So it's worthwhile, you know, contacting us or whatever contractor and having a a free service on your home. Most, Most contractors will carry out service free of charge and we'll evaluate your home free of charge, and you might be surprised at, you know, the cost Mm. to you at the end of the day once you avail of the grants available.
1: Well, if you want to pick Brendan's brain and his team at Premier Insulations, he will be at the Midlands 103 Green Home and Energy Show, and also the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, the SEAI, will be on hand as well in the Tullamore Court Hotel in just a few weeks' time. Brendan, if you want to talk in the meantime, how can you be reached?
9: Yeah, well, you can contact us on uh, free phone one eight hundred six four six four ten. Our installations dot com is our website if you want to have a look at our services. Fantastic,
1: thank, thank you, you, very you very much, much Brendan O'Carroll. Now. I should mention that if you're interested in HVO and Flynn Fuels, it's a free phone number, 1800 359 667. That's free phone, 1800 359 667. That brings the programme to a close. It was produced by Sinead Hubble, and we'll do it all over again tomorrow morning from nine. Have a great day. Car James on the way with the afternoon show. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
0: we